Hello and welcome to Three at the Back, the football analytics podcast from OptiPro. I'm Ryan Byer and I'll be your host for this episode. Today we're joined by Tom Warville, our data scientist at OptiPro. Hi Tom, thanks for coming on today. No worries, Ryan. And you're just back from Portugal. Back from Portugal, a few days in Lisbon, yep, managed to watch Benfica. Um, pretty fun game, and also saw a a wonder goal from the right back from just outside the penalty area. So, and uh, what was the score? Who did they play? Uh, played Portimonense. Apologies if I've screwed up that <laughs> pronunciation. Um, who are I think recently promoted, uh, and it was two one. And goal scoring right backs aside, did anyone catch your eye? Uh, yes, there was uh, Shoya Nakajima for Portimonense. It was a flying winger. Um, Japanese guy just come from the J League which was quite fun to watch uh, although I think the biggest thing from the game was the fourth goal sorry the equalising goal for Porto Nense was ruled out from VAR uh, and I lost my bet on the game from that <laughs> Excellent uh, and joining us as well is uh, Donald Barron Donald has over 12 years in professional football across three different clubs so um, really delighted to have Donald on today Donald thank you for joining us Yeah thanks for inviting me on the podcast Absolute pleasure so We'll get things underway straight away. Could you just give us a brief overview of, of your career and um, yeah, the history from how you got into the game up to uh, up to the present moment, I suppose? Yeah, well, um, thanks for having the show. And, and yeah, obviously I've had um, 12 years experience. Um, all of that professional experience has been in England. Um, you know, I worked at three clubs, so Leicester, uh, Coventry City and Norwich. Previous to that, obviously, I mean, I did an undergraduate degree uh, at Stirling University, a very sports-oriented uh, university there. Um, but through that, um, it has close ties with a lot of sport institutions. That was my first introduction to performance analysis, really. Um, I did an undergraduate degree in performance analysis, and I, I did a year abroad in America where, you know, we used match analysis a lot um, in the college team there. And that led to kind of, an interview with Craig Levine at Leicester City. So I, I kind of quite quickly went from finishing an undergraduate degree to having an interview with Craig Levine, moving down and becoming the first team analyst at the club. Um, so... That was my first introduction to the, the professional side of the game. Um, and back then, obviously, it was very much um, based around kind of focusing our own team analysis, but self-coding. Um, it was very much video, sort of technical, tactical analysis. Um, and obviously, technology was, um, you know, still very much developing then, but that was kind of my first role. Um, it improved. Um, you kind of brought in third-party providers, did more opposition analysis. It became to use a bit more tracking data, you know, more data on um, opposition teams, goals analysis, et cetera. But it was still very, you know, in terms of the data part, it was very basic then. But I moved to Coventry City, and that was an opportunity to kind of build a department. And they wanted to use data and obviously just, you know, video analysis um, as part of their kind of own analysis on the team, the opposition, recruitment, et cetera. Um, so I was there for four seasons and built that department. Paul Travis joined the club. We had some interns. You know, we did some link-ups with um, you know Nottingham Trent University. But then I moved on to Norwich City. Um, that was in 2012 and started working with Chris Hutton. And that was my first experience of the Premier League. Obviously, the club had gone through a massive growth from um, almost going into administration in League One, getting into the Premier League. You know, very quickly staying there. Um, had enormous success, but the the kind of support structures and hadn't quite caught up yet. So the the idea, you know, the chief exec, the manager, everyone involved was to build the analysis um, as a key part of their kind of development. Um, and that kind of started off. I was doing you know recruitment analysis for in preseason. We're doing uh, our own team analysis, opposition analysis. Um, but obviously, we grew the team. I uh, grew our you know technology. The providers we used 
brought in other members of staff and I moved very quickly in that first season more into um, kind of recruitment analysis. And then that grew eventually into, you know, head of technical scouting role and and building a technical scouting department. Excellent. So you've got, I suppose, experience of building building teams both on the recruitment side and the analysis side. Just um, just how much did has the job changed from when you started in two thousand and five to to now? Appreciate with with Leicester at the time, it must have been sort of all action and you know not enough time to breathe almost. Uh. Yeah, I mean, my initial start obviously I was very new to the kind of professional side of the game. I'd done some um, work alongside my university with Dundee United in Scotland so you know that was kind of an initial introduction but that's my first full-time job in professional football and I think um, uh, what you don't realise until you're inside the game is how little you know um, kind of tactically technically um, about the preparation of teams you know the kind of um, the amount of work that goes on behind the scenes so I think football is a fantastic game because there's so much passion entertainment um, everyone's got an opinion on it you know you've got your own teams that you follow and uh, it's something everyone goes up with in you know our country, but until you're really in behind the scenes and working day to day, there's you don't realise how little you actually know about it. And I think that was the thing; it was just a huge, enormous learning curve. And going back to sort of 2005, I'm not that old; I'm 34. But at that time, you know, even things like VHS were still around, so people were still handing out VHS tapes of the game, you know, afterwards to you know when you finish the game. So. Um, there were obviously self-coding software was around, but you know you're restricted in your sample size, etc. That you were, you were the only person having analysis. You know, a pure performance analysis role was new to many clubs. Even the championship at the time, Leicester were. So a lot of clubs didn't have any kind of analysis going on, um, or it was very basic part time. And I think obviously that's developed over time. The internet has been a huge um, factor in that. You know, I mean, when I started, things like YouTube and things like that hadn't even come around. So, like, online video, broadband, the development of that, you know, so the development of broadband speeds, being able to sort of access large samples of matches, you know, process them in a, you know, a central database quickly in their turnaround time require professional football has grown dramatically in sort of 10, 12 years. And I think that's that's led to, you know, improvement of what is possible, but also the acceptance of analysis within professional football and many other sports as well yeah you mentioned the the technology and how that's evolved since you started have you found that's the same on the cultural aspect you mentioned the acceptance of data and analytics and um yeah how has that evolved with it you mentioned you spent a year in the usa as well did you notice the the changes there yeah i think obviously um you know it's gone back quite a long time but uh i went over to america as part of my undergraduate degree you know particularly to go to the states because i knew that they were you know hugely invested in sport very professional and, and the investment in all the facilities and support for performance there is is a massive part. So even though it was a college, it was very much like being part of a professional organisation. They were obviously that was a women's team I worked with, but they were, you know, national ranked team, um, they had international uh, sorry, national team players in their squad. But they uh, had several full time coaches. They used performance analysis software, they reviewed games, they created data on their performances, reviewed that after each match. It was things that at that stage of my career, I hadn't been really introduced to. So it kind of opened up an idea of uh, an opportunity of how I could work in professional sport and something that I, I felt my skill set was, you know, sort of well suited to. And when I came back, I kind of pursued that further, you know, and got involved with elite sports analysis at the time. And I think that technology has just dramatically changed what is possible. And the data in America then was probably still very, you know, basic. But I think that their drive and determination to find any tool that can help them perform better 
was just really obvious and that was something that I've kind of taken into my career and something I've always um, you know, thought of is, is what uh, is possible that we either aren't doing just now, don't know enough about, that we can learn more about, that will help us do a job better and just incrementally improve performance. I was say, so <clears throat> obviously you went out to the States really early in your career. Was there any like certain one thing that you thought, right, going into my career at Leicester, moving into Leicester, that you'd like take that idea and try and sort of implement that? Um, I think in terms of, you know, a specific idea, I don't think it was specific ideas. I think it was more their processes and the professionalism and I think that their mentality of wanting to improve incrementally everything they did. So I think there's a lot of discussion and also all these things talked about in cycling, etc. previously kind of, and it's just the mentality of doing everything that's possible to improve your performance, you know, one piece at a time. You know, there's not a magic one part that will make you better or get you closer to your goal. It's doing a lot of small things really well and improving and almost looking for, you know, new ideas all the time. And I think that's especially important when you've got less resources, you're up against a lot of competition um, and, and you might not be able to go and just spend your way to success. I think that that, you know, and the way my career went, I actually ended up in a number of teams where you're probably at a disadvantage financially or in terms of resources, facilities. So it, that was a mentality I just kind of took through into every role I had. And we know that some people, some teams are more receptive to change, more open to new ideas. How did you find that in your across your career? So obviously you had three different sides, um, a fair few different managers, different coaches. Mm-hmm. How have you found the the general sort of uh, reception to to new ideas and, and innovation on that side of things? Yeah, I think um, in terms of analysis, when I started with Leicester City, I think it, it really, like I've said previously, wasn't common for clubs to have an analyst or to use you know analyst analysis providers. So it was that was a very new idea in its terms of kind of adapting and coaches and managers realizing what was possible, but also um, a process for me personally. I'm sure a lot of other people learning how you could be most effective and what it was that people required and just kind of some of the cultural kind of, you know, things that were expected, you know, how you communicate with people, the kind of language you use, um, the kind of knowledge you needed to uh, pick up about the game itself before you could really actually have active conversations and explain um, things that were maybe quite foreign to a coach or manager. But I'd say that obviously now you look at the number of analysis roles and now data analysis roles are opening up there is now a widespread acceptance that analysis is part of preparation week to week and you know month by month you know as part of um, professional football um, and a lot of other sports as well. I think that's improved dramatically in that period, um, and it, it but it changes from certain managers and different clubs that they are unique and that some are more data driven, some are more um, coach driven, and it's a mixture of kind of subjective and objective opinions. And was it a lot of learning on the job in terms of? You mentioned how to communicate with different different members of staff. Was that a case of trying to build your own credibility, the credibility of, of how data was perceived within that club? Was that a lot of learning on the job? Yeah, definitely. I think that um, I was kind of almost thrown in at the deep end the way my first role came up. Um, I was really lucky to get the opportunity, but I didn't go through a kind of postgraduate training course or kind of formal performance analysis training course at that time. Um, I know a lot of people, you know, I kind of spoke to other clubs, had gone to UIC, et cetera, and had then had that kind of period of probably learning from some really experienced people who'd worked in professional sports um, and that held them good stead. You know, I think I kind of went down another route and it, an opportunity opened up and it was too good to turn down and then it was very much learn as you go. And I think the thing that helped me, there were certain individuals um, like Rob Kelly, who was assistant manager at the time, 
really engaged with the analysis and wanted to to use it. And one of his main roles was working with me. Um, and then he became manager. And what really helped me the most was when I initially started, I was in an office quite a long way from where the coaches were, etc. But I was moved in with all the other coaches, um, which was next to the manager's office. And I just I had an enormous amount of um kind of football conversations that helped me understand more about their thought processes, um, the way they talked about the games, the things they looked at and things that were important to them, but things they wanted to know and they didn't know. And then that's where I, I could learn on the job of well, where can I be useful? How should I present this or how should I, you know, relate it back to them? And I think that helped me develop more confidence but have more impact, um, be more useful and productive. Yeah, that's uh, I noticed from the um, when we did a piece on the OptiPro blog with Pete Clark, he's at Leicester currently mentioned how close the analysts and the coaches work together and and the office they share and that sort of things, which makes it so much easier for them to share ideas, communicate, share what needs to be done, what and you know what's working and that sort of thing. So that seems to make a huge difference. One thing I want to move on to now is looking at the the Premier League and the Championship. You worked across both divisions and Championships, obviously full of matches. You would usually have a lot less resource. Uh, just how big a difference is it working in the two? Yeah, I think it's a, a massive difference. And I think that the, the difficulty for a number of clubs, obviously time pressure is the main main obstacle. Um, you're constantly almost just recovering and debriefing from one game and then you've got to try and prepare and, and then have the information ready for another team that may be completely different, different uh, tactical preparation, different uh, strengths and weaknesses, etc. That was in terms of obviously the the team analysis work I used to do, but the turnaround is very quick and there isn't a huge amount of time for the staff, the players, yourself to get away from, obviously, the, the kind of mental effects of the performance or the result from the previous game come down to a more kind of logical state of thinking and thinking of what do we need to do to prepare for the next game. It, it reduces your ability to think more mid to long term as well. Uh, I think that's also a huge thing and it becomes very much just about perform, perform, perform. And I think the thing that it's kind of counterintuitive to the kind of business side of the game, but almost in the championship and the lower leagues, you need more resources and more staff because there are actually more games. I think obviously Champions League teams, etc., and you know teams in Europe at the higher end have that added, you know, time pressure, more games, but they're usually resourced and able to, you know, supply that the staff and facilities to counteract that. Whereas in the football league, championship and below, those clubs, it's you know finances is a you know are a, a problem. So they're not able to match that. So then your ability to go short-term or even just think outside the box a little bit or develop projects more long-term is just drastically reduced and you have to meet the immediate needs of performing the next match. And is it a case of once that season starts, it is short-term in the next game? Um, is the summer perhaps the chance where you can look at those those bigger picture ideas? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the international breaks become key times in terms of obviously recovery is a massive aspect of performance. So, you, you know, you know, not just the players, but obviously all the staff. But it is obviously preparing for what's coming up more longer term and thinking about what you can add to you know your processes. But the the main time for that really comes towards the end of the season when you start thinking of you know almost a review of how you've done that, that season, what it is you can do to improve, and obviously financial kind of timescales around kind of people around that springtime. Everyone is thinking of what are we investing in for next season. Um, that's the inherent problems with outside the Premier League is that. The resources aren't as great, but also the stability of them is, you know, is is greatly affected by how you perform. The teams are at the lower end of the Premier League, etc. You know, you can't count on what your resources are going to be, so it restricts your ability to plan. But 
you know, I think if you're doing your role effectively, you are trying to think of how can we be better, what can we do, you know, that will move us on. Um, and I think that's they are both very difficult environments, but it's just there's obviously different challenges. Of course, and I want to move on now to to your time as as head of technical scouting. So you'd obviously done a lot of work on the analysis side, and then you moved on to, to focus on the recruitment. Could you tell us about that? And you mentioned earlier that you you were tasked with two clubs, I believe, in terms of building a team around you. What those teams were like, given the resources that you had available, and also it'd be good to know that what you do if if you walked into a club with unlimited resource, what you'd like your your recruitment team to look like. Yeah, well, that's, that's an interesting question. I think that when I went into Coventry, there was obviously a really um, kind of ambitious project. I met with John Murta, um, who's now Manchester United, but you know he was um, looking to bring in a lot of younger staff that could develop with the club. You know, a hedge fund, CSU, obviously still own the club, had come in with the idea that they'd like to invest in football. Uh, unfortunately, the kind of kind of crunch and um, the the issues in the states had a knock on that restricted their ability to invest. But the the idea, because of the involvement in the club at the time, there was a backing for analysis. Chris Coleman was manager. He'd been at Fulham, obviously been in the Premier League, and um, he was quite open to people bringing ideas to him and um, developing their own area and sort of challenging him. Um, and I think he was a, you know, a really good manager to work for. The, the team of Paul Travis was someone who brought in straight away. So he was very young and didn't have a, a huge amount of experience at the time, but it was trying to develop the team analysis, opposition analysis. The kind of recruitment scouting side of things got kind of scaled back. But around that time, you know, we talked about technology. You were very much restricted to the match-to-match data that providers at that time, which was Prozone, could provide. Uh, it was very difficult to look at larger data sets or look at, you know, in terms of recruiting players. Um, so we were lucky we had access to all the championship data at the time. So that in itself for locals and championships was quite a lot of data. And we did use that in terms of, you know, kind of trying to analyse what are the trends in our own performance, our own individual players, but also the the opposition teams, um, you know, things like goals analysis and, and trends in performance and how they kind of different teams were affected by the teams they played, etc. We did some interesting things on how we could create situations where we could be more effective at scoring certain types of goals that suit our team. But the team developed in that time we had more interaction with Nottingham Trent University. We brought some students in um, to try and help them give them an insight to professional football that I didn't really have before I got involved myself and that was kind of where the team got to before I left but in Norwich obviously it was completely blank canvas really and we brought in uh, another analyst to work with the first team when I was there um, Craig Guinness and then eventually another Lee Dunn who's still there today and obviously that process kind of allowed to expand and work in uh, you know kind of recruitment side of things more and I think at that time um, you know some of your guests Ben who's worked as a technical scout as well it was more around the video aspects. We, you know, we did use some aspects of clustering or available on our tools. You know, looking at some strengths and weaknesses of players, looking at some basic metrics. But it was still very much in its infancy. Um, and by all means, I'll say it's not. It wasn't extremely advanced, but it was trying to use data to find players and then assess players um, that previously hadn't maybe been thought about. Because a lot of work previously in the clock clubs before that was contacts agent recommendations if you happen to be at the right game where you saw a player and i think that you know it's obviously developed fantastically in the five years you know since i started to get involved in it but it's just the idea that the live scouting and data analysis can work together to get a more effective team you know it's not one aspect replacing another or one being more important it's it's trying to make some of your parts more effective and i think now there's obviously a lot more advanced metrics there's a lot more 
um, can be done with the data because the data provided is far richer, there's more detail, there's more context. Um, I think that's improving all the time. And how has it been building those relationships with the, the live scouts? How has that, have that been inside the club? What have you, um, have you had to change your approach? Have you had to be, try and be as open as you can? What have you done to try and build those relationships? Um, yeah, I think I've been, I've been very lucky. I've had a lot of good, positive relationships with you know, the scouting staff. And I think I've, my approach has always been you know, just trying to learn from everyone around me. And I think that uh, I know some people on probably either aspect of a scale, either from scouting or data analysis, you know, some have, have come at loggerheads of, well, I think I know more than you or, you know, I think I've got more to offer than yourself. And I think that my idea on it would be that you're all trying to get towards the same goal. So the, the more you can learn from each other and work together, surely we'll have more benefit. Um, I think that my conversations that I have with different people will just be very different. So a lot of the live scouts, it's more about, you know, which players do you like? You know, you know, did you watch this game recently? It's football conversations. Yeah. We did bring scouts in and, you know, had presentations. So I tried to give them an idea of what is it we do, trying to debunk the idea of, well, there's this great big unknown thing about data that I don't know. And, you know, they might have, you know, misconceptions or anything like that. I was trying to just explain it in a basic way, you know, that it's just a, another way of identifying players and trying to help them look at the most appropriate players. So we're not trying to send them to games or send them to watch certain players that their ability isn't, you know, a requirement. It, you know, it's un, they're unrealistic or that they, you know, they don't match the manager's requirements. So the data we use was all trying to help them go to the better games, you know, in terms of our requirements and look at the the, the more probably. You know, more focused looking, you know, the right players rather than players that are too old, you know. And, and I think the worst thing for a scout and you know, me going to a game is when you go and you think, I've not seen a player that's of interest to us. You know, why am I here? Or, you know, I could have been at another game watching other players that are more closer to what we want. So that that's the frustration. You want to be effective. And I think that's where we did have, you know, probably a good involvement with the scouts. I and mean, that's some of the better parts. Sometimes people are going to think that the data is trying to infringe on their role, and I think that you know you just got to try and work with people and have conversations. Really, using the the data, you know, talking about the scouting context as well, is that also important in sort of like even just looking at the scouting budget for a year, like where to send scouts to? Obviously, like flying them out there, you know, accommodation things like that. Is that you know has a big impact on the decisions made on sort of when and where scouts visit games? So the, the way I have worked before, I mean, it's specifically we weren't analysing the budget spend and huge data we obviously we tracked our budget and, and what we were covering um and a lot of detail the teams the players why we were trying to focus on the the most appropriate players for us and a lot of our detail was around the kind of age profile of players um that we were tracking and um you know obviously the teams and, and the, it was trying to make sure it was appropriate um i know that some teams will um look in a lot more detail of the you know the price per visit and things like that we did look to um, obviously regionalise it and we were looking at trying to get the most um, kind of appropriate games in a possible weekend so that, you know in terms of the money that was invested in a scout in a certain area they were covering as many of the appropriate games as possible but not going travelling large distances that had no players of value so it was about identifying the most appropriate players you know the kind of right kind of profile but, and also realistic players because a, a big part is players will be recommended to you constantly because they stand out and sometimes the ones who stand out the most it's because they they are attracting the interest of the biggest clubs so sometimes it's just information that that player is in discussions with a club that's way higher than our, than our capability of attracting but that was that was a focus of our work as well 
You spoke about the um, the age profile often being important, and we spoke a bit earlier uh, before we came on air about how different positions would have different age profiles. Could you tell us a bit about about that um, overview and your thinking, different clubs thinking, um, blending experience with youth development? Yeah, I think the different managers have got a different approach. Um, I think that you know the, the pressure on results and things like that creates a kind of tendency to move towards. They're probably more experienced players, um, and I think it just depends on the club's uh, philosophy, really. But I think we did look at the age profile of our squad, how that was developing over time, contract situations, etc. And a lot of our work was on monitoring and assessing the players who are 24 and under, and even younger than that as well, to some extent, but in professional football. Uh, that was our main area of focus, because they were the ones who were going to be moving and developing, moving on, but also would have resale value. While I was at Norwich and Coventry and Leicester, those clubs had budgets that were not, you know, you know, huge budgets compared to the competition around us. So a lot of the time you're looking at and thinking about are the players in that squad that potentially have a resale value and that money can then be reinvested to bring other players forward. So, you know, you're trying to improve the quality of the squad, but also think, you know, are there players in there that had a, a resale value? And I think, you know, at times your age bracket can move forward quite quickly. And, and you've got to be aware of that and planning, you know, and thinking of which players could come in underneath that. And the, the issue is sometimes balancing players will develop when they play games. It's very difficult to develop players that you bring in and also spend what can be considerable amounts of money. If they're not getting that game time, there's that frustration element, but also just that experience from playing is, is usually what they learn and develop with. So timing can be difficult in those situations, but um, I think you, you do need to be, you know, consciously thinking of that. I think that there's some clubs out there who can effectively spend huge amounts of money on players at the later part of their career. You know, maybe their short-term success goals are kind of really important at that time, but a lot of clubs now need to think a bit more strategically. And how does that link, I suppose, with signing a young player or promoting a youth player to the first team? I appreciate that youth player's always got to be good enough, but is it something that that'll be your, your preference on head of recruitment or, or would that be something pushed from, from the youth side to you? Um, I think the my experience in the, in the roles I've had, the decisions on obviously who is going to play or their kind of their transition into the team has been more from a manager or a technical director, you know, and coaching staff. But there has been discussions around which players are looking to progress or which players they where they think they're at compared to our squad. In Norwich, obviously, there was you know an FE Youth Cup winning team, so there was players in that team who had real high potential and it. It was something that was consciously being, you know, thought of and discussed regularly about development of players. So, you know, obviously the Josh and Jacob Murphy are two products of that team, who both got on and, and obviously become more and more successful, more exposure they've had to first team football. But they had to be very patient, and there's timing issues and, and balancing that issue of different times of clubs staying in the Premier League um, and giving someone exposure to a level they're maybe not quite ready for, which is going to stretch them give them exposure to develop but maybe the team's goals are more short term at times um, but you know they had undoubted talent they both had international recognition they, you know they've gone on been successful um, you know and gradually imposed their, their qualities that people knew they had more and more as they've gotten more game time and I think in a lot of clubs they've got to try and balance the pressure they put on the manager and sometimes it's the fans and you know we're all watching games you're all baying for your team to get a result and frustration and you're putting pressure on the game to become more and more short term. You know, other countries they look at England and think you don't play young players. You know, and you're you're calling for the manager to be sacked after six games or four games or, you know, a, a bad month. You know, and that pressure 
has a knock-on on how clubs think, how long-term they think. Some will resist and say, this is how we work, you know, this is what we're going to do. But if the results are right, they quite often do tend to change the head coach. Other people might stay, but it doesn't make the head coach feel better. So, you know, they're the one to pick the team and it's a delicate balancing act. And it depends very much on the club philosophy. And one thing I want to I want to come on to is alongside the sort of bringing in different players, we've spoken about how, and Tom, this is something you'll be able to have a bit of insight on in terms of certain positions are perhaps better suited for data analysis than others. I know we, we've struggled with centre-halves and goalkeepers in terms of our development compared to centre-forwards and wide players. It would be good to hear to hear your thoughts on positions and where you value data highly and how that links up with the work you've been doing, Tom. Sure. I mean, I guess there's there's always some value that data can add in to like your centre-halves and your goalkeepers, but obviously you probably can't lean on it as much or, or add as much weight to that in your final decision as you would say, you know, other other positions forwards or maybe centre-mids. I guess there are, you know, there are things, piece of work we've done recently with, you know, sequencing data together. Um, that can tell us about the the different types of fullbacks, the different types of centre halves, those that sort of are involved in the build up, profiling sort of what a player does when they're involved in that build up, um, the sort of passing range they have, things like that. The same for goalkeepers as well. Um, I think with with goalkeepers, something interesting is looking at the repeatability of performances over time, and then therefore, you know, if these performances that we can measure with expected goals and various other metrics isn't uh, overly repeatable then you know why is that not is that just sort of goalkeepers in general or, or is it just sort of you know what the data is telling us and then what can we learn from the scout's eye and, and sort of you know getting the scout to put that into into words you know what can we learn from that that we can't from this data so yeah I guess there are key characteristics you'd, you'd look to sort of isolate and find out and therefore you know for a given positional profile or, or a given manager like Donald's saying uh, a period of time you know we're looking to win the next 10 matches what fullback do I use you know, this time versus the, the longer run. Yeah, I think in in my experience, in terms of um, you know specific positions, what I've been part of, and I think it was obviously you know the the team I had, you know, and it, you know, we built at Norwich, um, involved you know multiple people's input. So I was lucky with two technical scouts, Will Lansfield and Sam Pope initially, and Alex Klein played a big part. He was um, a data analyst who came into the club. Um, he was actually doing a postgraduate degree at the time, but worked for the club as well. They had a massive input, but what our process involved was creating a rating system and a position-specific rating system that was built from an initial kind of, you know, discussions with the manager and coaching staff about what the requirements were and what they wanted in each position, um, and then sort of translated that into aspects we thought related to it. So I wouldn't say that it was. Um, you know, as well developed as some of the data scientists work or bloggers work in certain areas, but it was a very practical tool that helped us identify probably the most effective players or the you know the best rated players according to the data in a number of leagues across Europe that you know maybe we didn't have coverage in and stuff like that. So it was a great way of identifying the right players to be scouting and monitoring and who was performing well. So to give you an example, you know, in terms of fullbacks, there were certain things we were looking for you know, kind of key aspects in terms of a, a footballing, you know, requirement. So things like 1v1 defending, you know, their ability to kind of defend on the front foot, their aerial ability, their, you know, distribution, their kind of attacking threatening product. And then what we did was we kind of looked at metrics to try and assess those and break that down into a kind of simple score that could be related to the coaches and um, and then visualise. So, I mean, we used a mixture of different metrics um, based on the kind of, you know, the per 90 and their percentage success and also had to kind of create some, you know, some of our own. So, you know, Alex was, you know, a great help in that because without him, we wouldn't have been able to do half of this work. And I think that was the real benefit that 
I was really keen to bring someone in and people like Sam Green and Martin Eastwood and you know the companies like Opta gave us a lot of advice on what you can what was possible and then it was a case of trying to slowly um, look at what was the most impactful way of using that knowledge um, and, and having a really practical impact so in terms of fullbacks you know we're we're looking at things like you know their ability to sort of recover the ball tackles one v ones but in certain areas of the pitch. So being able to use not just the CSVs, but XMLs, you're able to give a bit more context and locations. So trying to nail down typical areas where 1v1 defending occurs and how much um, or how successful are players in these sort of situations. So you, you might question maybe some of the maths behind some of these things or exactly is it measuring what we wanted, but it was as close as we could get with what we had available to try and start to measure these things. And it's obviously incrementally improving over time. With the um, with the technical scouts as well, I guess working with and alongside Alex, how do you then use what sort of what they're seeing and, and their reports? Do you use that to sort of add a, another layer? Because I guess the, to some extent now with the up to data, we can sort of overlap what scouts will be seeing in terms of like keeps possession well or you know always looks to advance as soon as he has the ball, things like that. We can now measure those things so there's less of an onus on the technical scout to sort of look for that and it's more looking at the things that we we can't measure. Yeah, well, I think the the thing you know we try to do and and it's trying to put a kind of logical process in where you have scouts reporting in a kind of consistent way that aligns with obviously the, the philosophy of what you want from that position or your requirements from that position. Um, also, it's the same, you know, into how you use the data. You're trying to find things that measure these aspects, and it's trying to then marry them up. So, getting play, you know, getting the scouts and the reports to give you examples of why they think someone is 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 good at a certain aspect or you know that they can improve or what they can improve to sort of build your knowledge and examples and, and give really simple things like giving timings of examples of the real strengths and weaknesses so you can kind of compare what they're seeing to what the data is telling you but also what more senior staff and the manager or coaching staff are, are you know feeding back in terms of their assessments. And trying to just get everyone on the same page, I think it's incredibly difficult and it's complex because you've got different people with different takes on the game and previous kind of uh, conceptions of the game or what for different staff that has an influence. But you're trying to get the, their input in terms of what they see live because um, there's so much off the ball that you can't see on a camera or the data maybe doesn't have a way of measuring yet. So it's trying to marry those up. But we had ways of collecting all that data into a database also given kind of scores based on their subjective opinions that then could kind of an overall rating um, that could be then reported back in a summary of players as well as the data, kind of performance data and, you know, version of the player and also the video to give a visual to the staff exactly what, you know, people are seeing, what they're reporting and why a player has maybe been put in front of them. So trying to bring a lot of information together and really summarise them in depth. And there's obviously lots of aspects of kind of character and personality financially all these kind of things that you'd, you'd want to know um, trying to bring that all together you know the further down the line you go perfect that's, that's really interesting i think that's it's a really nice place to wrap it up for for part one we're going to take a quick break and we'll be uh, we're back shortly for more discussion Welcome back to Three at the Back. In this second half, we'll be looking at both some of the aspects on the managerial side and also looking beyond the day-to-day aspects of, um, of working in, in this role and um, looking at some of the more broad, broader aspects surrounding football analytics. So to start with, Donald, you've worked for quite a few different managers and a few of them will always bring different philosophies. I wanted to know how that will change your aspect, your role, how you've had to adapt when different managers have come into the football club. Yeah, I think the... 
particularly the way clubs have been run, you know, traditionally that, you know, the manager is kind of um, the overall um, final decision maker and kind of uh, makes all the decisions on the football side of, a, you know, the business. A change in manager has a massive impact on, you know, all the staff, all the players, everyone's, you know, kind of gone back to a clean slate, those kind of things. But obviously they have a particular way they think, you know, they want to play, the things they look for. Uh, and you, uh, I think there was a period in my career where people actually would get in touch with me because I had so many managers in a short space where they'd look for advice on, well, how do you prepare for a new manager? Or how do you work with a new manager comes in? Because, you know, unfortunately I was at, because I had 13 managers in 12 years, but I think at one point I had four in one calendar year. And it took me quite a long time before I even had a manager who had more than, you know, like a full, had a full season as such. So I think the... The, their way of playing and you know their character and uh, you know their kind of personality has an impact on how everyone works around about them, and it definitely has an impact. You know their interest or engagement analysis. I had managers who were very you know interested initially, um, you know engaged with it from day one. I had others who you know wasn't really interested. And they maybe sort of realised because they hadn't had it before. Um, they had a lot more input. Others, you know. It, they were very hands-on in terms of what they wanted, when they wanted it, and it was very set. You know, that's those are the things they looked at, that's what they wanted, but they were very hands-on. And at times it could be very much, you know, just video-based. Uh, other times managers get a lot more freedom. Um, so Chris Coleman, Alex Newer managers that probably thought a bit, bit younger managers, um, but expected their staff to bring ideas to them, bring, you know, you know, possibly new things to them that would make them think slightly differently. They're not always going to act on it. You know, they would obviously make their own decisions, but they they wanted you to um, you know be thinking ahead and trying to improve things all the time. And I think all you know the different approaches from them has a huge impact on your day to day, and also you know whether you are thinking long term or whether you know it's very short term. Does that culture of encouraging bringing new things to the table does that sort of help that idea of innovation, thinking outside the box, and almost going beyond the the day to day? We know this works. We know this is what we do. But what can we do to perhaps get that bit better? Yeah, I think that um, has a massive impact. I think, obviously, you know, a slightly different um, slant as well. The chief exec, when I first went to North City, David McNally, did massive things while he was at the club. But he wanted um, the club to improve year on year. He wanted the staff to be pushing to improve. And I think he was uh, mindful of the club being financially solvent. But he wanted you to build a, you know, a business plan or... Um, build a justification and if there was an idea and a real proper thought process you know there was investment there for me it was great you know because that was exactly what I wanted to work for that's what I wanted to hear um, from managers or the chief exec or you know whoever I was working with and I think that helps you engage with what you're doing I think repetition and if it stays the same and there's not real development you can become stagnant you know and the, the volume of work and the sort of you know the dedication required um, it can you know kind of dull your thought process a little bit. So I think you know in terms of what data analysis offers now, I think it's opened up a huge amount of doors of how you can develop your processes and what you can learn about the game. And I think if you're in the right environment and they they're open to you trying out new things or you have time because they have enough staff and facilities, I think there's so much more that's still to be you know to found out about the game because now people are starting to link together tracking data with the event data. And I think there's now, you know, more solutions where you can actually start to link the scout and live report feedback and almost add, you know, numerical data to that with the performance data. And you're starting to add and almost have a multi-dimensional level. I think that's, you know, we're getting to that kind of point. You know, there's things like, you know, the psychology and character of a player, which are hard to measure, but 
there's a lot of avenues you can go down now which are really interesting and exciting you know if you're given the opportunity to to investigate it uh, alongside making sure you, you know the day-to-day is, is done of course and and looking at that that innovation that that sort of more open approach and thought process behind it you've obviously got quite um relatively extensive academic background you've done some work there um how has that shaped your thinking in football your thought processes how you've worked with different with was fellow analysts coaches managers how's how's that background influenced your role there yeah i think the the academic side and and also the professional side in terms of football in my experience they're also very far apart in terms of you know their approaches and you know there hasn't been a lot of interaction. Um, I think that's improved. The you know analysis, and I'm talking more of the performance analysis side of things with kind of game analysis. It they're starting to come together more because there's more courses available. There's more formal training, undergraduate, postgraduate courses, and I think that's um, kind of bringing the two disciplines closer together a bit more. I think that I think there's a huge amount of opportunity for clubs where you know people in the academic side can do some more mid to long term research projects um, they can both benefit from working together but academic research previously has not had any kind of real practical insight they're not really interacted um, and it's maybe similar to some of the bloggers initially that they were doing their own thing without guidance or interaction understanding of the practicalities of, of the sport and would you perhaps say that the onus might be more on the club side of things to, di- to direct that research we know we've got this pool of people both on the more public analyst side and the academic side that are so competent with data, their ideas, their innovations, but perhaps it's being guided by those questions. You think there's more of an onus on clubs to to work closely with the, with these groups and sort of share these questions and ideas? Yeah, I think that um, it needs a, a kind of interest on both sides, but I think um, academics who really do want to have a practical impact or, or have a practical um, approach need to really approach um, clubs and, and and I think events like the Opta Pro Forum, etc., where there's a big mix of people, I think that's one of the real benefits of that um, you know, event is that people come together, have got different backgrounds, can share knowledge, can discuss things, you know, they can actually find some common ground and they can realise that they are all trying to do similar things. I think that the academic side has a lot to offer. There's a lot of people with lots of great skills, but the I think they need to go with a professional mindset. Uh, and listen to what it is the professional clubs are trying to achieve. What the, you know, like forming the research question and what is going to actually be practically useful at the end of it should be vital at the start. I think a lot of academic research previously they were limited by the technology, you know, the time pressure, etc. But they didn't really come up to with a real practical mindset. So some studies have kind of come up with some really basic, you know, assessments saying that shots at goal and possession, you know, are vital to the outcome of a match so you should practice these things in training it's kind of like that's it's kind of a kid's assessment of football you know it's very basic and I think that it can move forward drastically now I mean that's something I've kind of got more interest in now yeah it's that classic so what question isn't it I think um, even the ideas that we share both internally and what we've seen in different spaces we always have that question as well whenever making sure it always answers that so what and what we're doing is valuable to it in the yeah. same space. There was a great uh, video by, I think it's Daniel Fradley at New York City FC in the past week about sort of the analytical processes at, at New York City. Um, <clears throat> one of the, the big things for him is sort of seeing a box score and looking at how many touches in the box they had and sort of the shots on target. Um, and it's just for him, like, you know, how do I even start to take that and implement that into the manager's thinking or, or you know, how he 
changes sessions or how he changes his match planning. You know, like Ryan's saying, the the big so what is is really important. So yeah, what how can we turn this sort of data into actionable things and and you know better decisions really? So yeah, yeah some of the I think the getting to the point of applying what you found, it doesn't even involve showing all the working. You know, I mean, I think in school and, you know, academia, the sort of things where you've got to detail and outline every step you've taken um, to get to, you know, your final point. And I think sometimes when you're working with coaches or with players or a manager in that environment, they want to know, well, what have you found? Uh, and if you're good at building relationships and communicating with people and talking their language, you can build up, you know, a trust and, and they'll have a confidence in you to take what you're saying almost at face value. So, you know, if they want to delve further into it, that's great. But sometimes you can blind people with too much of the detail too early. Um, and, and that's a balance act depending on who you're working with. But that's something that, you know, I've kind of learned, obviously, through experience. Yeah, that's something we've had quite a lot of on the feedback side uh, from clubs at the Octopro Forum. So I think there's the understanding that they know the guys presenting in front of them are more than competent in regards to their, their method, their approach and the analysis that goes on behind it particularly as they're working alongside a, a club analyst to, uh, to get a bit of mentoring along the way. You know, the, the engine that goes into that, that work and those results probably could take more of a backseat to showcasing this is what I've, you know, this is how you can action what I've found. And then the, the methodology behind it can perhaps come second to, to the results, which in a professional game is what's needed. Yeah, I think because obviously the, the kind of academic work I've done, um, you know, is working towards an MPhil and, it, and it's involving um, neural networks, machine learning, um, if you read academic research in that area, there's a lot of discussion of the, the maths behind it, the models, um, the different iterations they've developed and how and why. There's less about the end product of why they did it. And there's less focus on that. And there's less discussion of that. The writing is very scientific, very, very short and to the point. And I think that, um, you know, going to the Optiform, some of the, the presentations have had a similar format. Um, and I think when you go into a professional sporting environment, the, the short-term nature of it and the pressure of it is on, well, what's it telling me? So that is the part you need to go to explain. And people need to probably just kind of come out of their comfort zone a little bit. Maybe some of the people aren't as comfortable presenting in front of that large group. Maybe the first time they've done that, which is not easy, but training some of those skills as well, because those are the things that will differentiate you in a professional environment from the obvious technical skills you've you've got and what you've done on your own and I think that's the bar is getting higher and higher and I, I mean I was very lucky to work with Alex Klein at Norwich who's got a great wide array of skills and was great the, the biggest thing for him was just listening at what was going on around him and he learned so quickly um, and then at the start it was maybe more directed where his work was focused but I think he listened and learned he was there very quickly and, and he you know worked on his own but he could relate some very complex ideas in simple ways. And it was something he developed and improved more and more. But I think that's a skill that uh, is probably vital to anyone who wants to go into that environment. And I mean, Alex has done really well and has now moved to Southampton. So he's progressed very quickly to have great clubs, a great environment, great facilities. And I think there's not many people in those roles at the moment. So there's a lot of opportunities at some great clubs with some great people that are out there. Um, but it's trying to get towards that level. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And one thing I want to quickly come back to is you mentioned um, Alex Neal, Chris Coleman, really open to new ideas and coming forth. In your experiences, how did you find the best way to get those ideas across was? You've had a new idea. What's the best way of sharing it? We mentioned that if you went too much into the detail, you might lose the manager along the way. So how did you have to sort of look into that? 
in, in the football environment I've worked in, it's you can prepare it or explain it in the best way possible, but if your timing isn't right or, you know, it it all depends on a little bit of luck, but timing is, is, is essentially a big part as well because after certain results or certain time periods or certain time pressures in the season, people are going to be more and less receptive. And these are sort of, you know, some of the soft skills, you know, people talk about now um, that you you have to learn to gauge where people are at mentally when you're having an interaction with them. And that's something, obviously, you learn with experience. And, you know, I was lucky to have a, um, some training and uh, some of these areas where you can sort of gauge when you start a conversation with someone whether they're receptive to listening or whether they, they literally are just there zoning out, you know, they, you know, whether they really want a vital piece of information because they're trying to go to another meeting. So I think the timing um, and almost the the kind of mental state someone's in when you've got this idea, that's vital. And you've got to try and gauge where they're at and then see your opportunities. Sometimes um, a problem might arise because of something and you've actually already been working something for a while and that's your opportunity to throw it in there and say, well, I've actually, we've been working on this thing in the background. We think it could actually help you with the problem you've got right now. Um, and they're, they're really receptive because they're looking for an answer to a problem. Sometimes, you know, things are going really well um, they don't really want to change things. You know, it, it's all sort of timing and opportunity, really, and sort of gauging someone's sort of receptiveness. It's really interesting because, I mean, one of the big things that people say with with sort of data science and analytics for being it being successful in the club is sort of the communication skills, and we rarely have people sort of break down into what specifically is you know good communication skills. You know, is it just the you know making notes for example or being a good listener like you're saying with Alex um, you know that is a skill in and of itself but we never really have people who sort of say black and white these are the things that are important for you know a well-oiled machine that is a you know recruitment or, or a performance analysis department so yeah yeah I think it's when you um, when you're working independently and on your own uh, a lot of these things you know unfortunately you're not having to work on them or practice them or you're not being challenged I think in the football environment and in any sport and performance time pressure environment, you're constantly being pushed beyond your boundaries to, you know, sort of stretch and get to the level required because it's so competitive. And I think that's where you can learn, um, you know, sort of sink or swim type thing. And I think that a lot of these soft skills don't get talked about and people sort of think, well, you either have them or you don't. And, and you can learn how to improve certain aspects. Um, you know, and I think that, the training of those isn't something that universities typically cover and professionally I don't know how many businesses really invest in it but it's quite a significant part of you know day-to-day job and the people who are successful at them uh, you know kind of naturally do tend to you know progress in their careers because they're able to find sort of commonalities with people and build relationships and build trust Um, and I think they are the kind of people who make good leaders or organizers of groups because they have that ability to get more out of people um, and kind of build that bond I think that's people make decisions and that's kind of the critical part data can play a certain part in you know football or in any decisions but at the end of the day people make a final decision and a judgment and there's an element of your technical skill and the soft skills of building relationships and trust that, that also impact whether you're going to be successful or not yeah, I'd 100% agree in terms of just how, how important developing those connections can be in these situations. I'm going to bring it back quickly because we've mentioned it already. The OptiPro Analytics Forum um, proposals are currently being accepted. I think we've got until uh, Monday, the 16th of October, the deadline. So 
still time to get yours in if you were thinking about applying. So you spoke about, we've spoken about the presentations and how the results can become more of a perhaps greater emphasis along with having the different people in the room is is, the, is a useful opportunity for um, for understanding different problems or perhaps that's the case on the club side so you can understand the questions the clubs need answering. But I suppose on the club side, they can find out perhaps who is best placed, who has got the skills, who has got new ideas to answer questions they have as well. So I just wondered if there's is there anything more you've, you think around the event and perhaps something you'd like to see more of or topics presented at the event, anything along those lines? Yeah, I mean, I think my natural interest, a lot of it is, is gone towards scout recruitment the more I've been involved in it. And I think that's something obviously I really like to see, you know, presentations in that area because um, some have got, you know, a deep interest in and worked in. I think that uh, I'd like to see more, um, you know, I don't know if it's something that you've got an idea of, in terms of like actual workshops in and around the event as well, where people can start to get into the nuts and bolts of, well, how, how do you actually use some of the methodologies to, to get to your end product, you know, but maybe talk about that more, a smaller group where, the, you know, you've got people actually wanting to learn some of these skills. So starting to, you know, encourage people to learn how to maybe use products like R or Python or, you know, Alteryx Tableau, you know, it, some more, some like skills workshops, you know, some, you know, discussion points. Um, I think that the the poster presentations where people were there in breaks and stuff, I think they're really good because you get to, you know, stand there and talk to people in a group and learn a bit more about the background. I think sometimes the larger presentations, people are anxious to ask questions, whereas, if they then had a small section where they had that poster with the work, then it's it's probably a smaller um, you know group, and people are more happier to discuss things. Then I think that um, some of those things for me are you know my sort of takeaways or sort of things that would be interesting. Yeah, I think that's something that we've yeah we've heard we've heard from different different sectors as well in terms of having a chance to speak one on one with a presenter to find out those, those nitty gritty details is perhaps a space that isn't right for the Q and A post presentation. But it's something we need to facilitate at some stage during the day. So um, no, that's, that's really handy to know. I think the last last topic today we're going to look at is on the, I suppose the the advanced metrics, advanced analytics, looking at the implementation of these. So um, perhaps we know that we're seeing, you know, for example, we're seeing expected goals on match of the day now, which is um, which is incredible given it's an action show. So we know that they're coming more and more into play. We know certain clubs have been using them, applying them, been aware of them for years. So. We just wanted to get understand sort of where you see these particular metrics best used, how they'd be implemented, and the importance in communicating them with different football club members. So, Tom, I'll leave you to um, to begin discussing, you know, which metrics we'll look at, and then, um, yeah, we'll, we'll get Donald's input in terms of the implementation and the next steps with these. Yeah. I mean, something we discussed off air, myself and Donald, was sort of how you'd use something like the sequences work we've been doing. So, sequences, for those who aren't aware, is essentially sort of linking together the, the Opta events to give us a more sort of overarching view of uh, the context of where an event is, what sort of phase of play it belongs to. Um, so the outputs for that are sort of things like passes per sequence, sort of in a in a build-up to a goal, how many players are involved, how many passes, how fast was the attack, things like that. And, and I guess sort of one of the things that we're starting to look at more for the pro side now is sort of in and out of possession. This is sort of terminology that's used within the club quite frequently and doesn't really translate that easily compared to the, the media side. We sort of say, you know, attack and defence. Um, and yeah, sort of looking at, you know, what do you allow teams, uh, the opposition to do in terms of out of possession? Do you allow them to attack at you at speed? Do you allow them to uh, pass the ball around a lot? What areas are these in? Uh, which is probably sort of the most interesting part is sort of where on the pitch. So I guess from, yeah, Donald, from your point of view, you know, conversation we were having, what sort of things do you think that, you know, sequencing together these events, what value can it add? Yeah, I mean, I think sequences of events is 
uh, is a really good progression, you know, for the you know the kind of analytics and the data analysis that goes on in clubs because context is obviously vital and everything. So um, I think everyone uses the kind of passing percentage, just the overall passing percentage, is a kind of really basic starting point to discuss there. And it's really useful because that's a, you know a common feedback thing. If if you just present that or some match of the day, players will then go well actually, but. You know, this week I was man marked, or you know, um, I was quite often being pressed because they know I'm a key part of our build up play, or um, you know, they were playing against a, a certain shape, or someone was matched up against me. Those sort of things. That, uh, and if you look at academic research, people's performance is affected by, you know, who's against them. You know, the opposition, their approach, so the sequences. I think, in a practical way of, of you know, in terms of team analysis, I think looking at teams who play in a particular style how they do that when they're at their best, when it's been maybe a team's been able to slightly restrict. So I think you talked about, you know, Leipzig previously and their kind of ability to be, you know, quite direct and in more a counter-attacking sense rather than, you know, a lone ball type team. But that was one of the things that kind of stands them out. When you look at simple data, they didn't stand out as much. I think being able to assess a team's style of play very quickly with the data and find matches or instances to look at um, that you can then present to a coach to kind of maybe show how a team's either trying to structure their pressing, where they've pressed, how they've pressed, in what areas they press the ball that maybe prevents their ability to counterattack quickly or different things like that in terms of their, you know your your approach to kind of your playing certain thirds of the pitch maybe where you can be more successful, that you can be more penetrative when you're passing when certain passing movements or I think that it helps reduce down very quickly to find instances and find the context that you're looking for because time pressure is always massive uh, in the team analysis. I think in recruitment, finding players who obviously have similar sequence, you know, playing teams who have similar styles through the sequences is, is obviously vital. I think players with certain tendencies that, you know, are very successful in certain instances of pressing in certain areas or in a certain way. Um, you know, I think all these things off the ball in this that transition phase haven't really been assessed before I think that's it's just another level to the, the data really and I think you, you mentioned in a previous podcast that you can look at basic metrics of teams and they maybe don't differ that much and when you start to go to that level it, it improves you know the context is, is massive and it has a massive impact on the insights you can glean yeah and there's sort of the the overarching framework for a lot of people at clubs I've spoken to is sort of game to game we'll look at five or six of a team's previous games be it home or away um, and sort of you know code the game ourselves or look at clips from those games but you know using something like this we sort of see the value in saying uh, you know we're going to play this specific game plan they've played uh, a game plan similar to ours or against a game plan similar to ours in these three or four games and sort of then you can look at different games you wouldn't have watched previously and so there are you know, plenty of efficiencies and just for a start, finding clips, which I think can be quite a, a mm-hmm. tedious thing. Uh, and then also, you know, what insights can we glean? How do they play against this certain style? Things like that. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's, you've got to look at it and, and you know, I'm talking about academic research or data analysis or anything you're using is you've got a practical question to answer and you're trying to impact performance. So from the, the manager or coach's perspective, their preparation time is very limited with the players, um, particularly the high end where they've got European football and domestic football or football league. So they're trying to get to the point of they know what they want to practice in terms of with without the ball and kind of the transition phases um, with the players in the limited time they have because the players can only be on the pitch for so long. You know, and fatigue and 
you know, that rest and recovery are vital. So they want to get to that point as quick as possible. They can plan their training, look at what teams have done that's been effective against people or what problem issues, you know, they might have had. So if you're looking at, you know, it's just simply how you're trying to press the ball, it's how do teams counteract that when you press in a certain way? What, what can you prepare for before they go on the pitch and then put on practices that reflect it so you can be more efficient? So coaches might not actively think, well, I've got to review the video, do this, do this, do this, to get to that point, but that's what they're trying to do. Mm. And your part in your team is to help that be more efficient. So it might not be I've looked at the data and X, Y, and Z, but you find video instances of this is you know what teams have done, this is what we could do, or this is how we've done it in a way before. You know, this is what they might do to counteract it. But the coach and the manager can then assess that, decide what they're going to do. It might inform team selection, it might inform the tactical approach, or you might be thinking two or three games ahead and thinking, well, if we play a player in a certain way or play in a certain way for this game, they might not be able to play in another game where actually it suits their strengths and weaknesses. So there's lots of ways you can have a practical impact with it, but it's, um, again, come back to this, how you... You know, the technology and the data and how you smart you are with it can make you more effective. Excellent. Perfect. Thank you very much. And that's a really, really nice place to wrap up. I think that's been a, a really enjoyable, insightful conversation across both both parts of the day. So, Don, thank you very much. Um, great to have you on board for today. Thanks very much for inviting me today. Absolute pleasure. And, Tom, thank you very much as ever. No worries. Thanks, Ryan. And thank you very much for listening.